You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. In my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench. Women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. Welcome back to another episode of United States of Women. Mm-hmm. It's another beautiful Saturday morning here with Jessica. Yay! So, Jessica, mm-hmm. what do you know about orphanages in the U.S.? I know that Eliza Hamilton established the first private orphanage in New York City. <laughs> that's, that's, that's about it on my real history musical. And then my fake musical history is that Miss Hannigan is not a great headmistress of, <laughs> of orphans during the Great Depression. <laughs> okay. Fair, fair yes. enough. Yes, and, and I, I do know it's a way to take children that have lost their parents to hopefully find families that will love them for forever. There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. So the first, a little bit more history for you. The first orphanage was established in the United States. The first orphanage established in the United States was in 1729, um, and it cared strictly for white children. Naturally. Um, and it was... Built in Natchez, Mississippi, um, for children that were orphaned due to the conflicts between Native Americans and whites. Well. Yeah, like, surprise, surprise. Okay. Um, So they really grew between 1830 and 1850, uh, but they were pretty much exclusively private you know, charitable organizations built them. Uh, between those, during those twenty years, the U.S. established fifty-six children's institutions, mm-hmm. and they were built in a response to primarily health epidemics: cholera, tuberculosis, influenza, mm-hmm. wars, and then influxes of immigrants um, into particular geographical areas general urbanization, those kinds of things, poor working conditions. Yeah. All of that fun stuff that caused people to die early, leaving small children without families. Mm -hmm. So prior to the establishment of orphanages, how do you think we took care of orphaned children who didn't have any family? Probably not that great. I imagine they had to get jobs if they could do a job. Like... So we actually allowed them to, or we would house them with uh, adult criminals. <laughs> they would be put in jail. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Um. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was like I, I I don't know why, but like my first thought is was it like somebody was like a social worker or which not that I don't think you had social workers at the time was just like well what if to make a criminal not a criminal like what if we just gave him a kid and like because kids make you good people <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not how it, it works no this was definitely like they would end up in places like debtors prisons oh. um, because it was. The concept of if you removed them from other families or other things, Mm -hmm. you could control their upbringing. Yeah. So it was very much a way for the rich to control the poor. 
uh, and it was a good way to obtain child labor. Yeah, that's that. that yeah. They probably had to get a job with my family. Just so <laughs> yes, but um, so obviously, great thing that you know in seventeen twenty nine, we're like, hmm, maybe we house children by themselves <laughs> through charitable organizations that might care for them. Yeah. Uh, however, primarily, orphanages were. For one thing, you didn't actually have to be an orphan to be in an orphanage. Huh. Uh, it, from 1840 to, seven to, and to 1869, um, a review of the Protestant Orphan Asylum in St. Louis mm-hmm. revealed that only 27% of the children were actually full orphans. They didn't have any living parents. Whoa. 69% of the children had one parent and the other parent being deceased or absent. So... If you had a spouse die and you couldn't care for your children, they would go to orphanages. Mm-hmm. So you might not actually be an orphan. Orphan, orphan. Um, and then 4% of the children still had both parents. Okay. They just gave the child up to an orphanage. Um, so because of that, many of the children were not... Orphanages weren't often... You didn't grow up in orphanages. Mm-hmm. You'd go and stay there for a year or two while your parent figured out what to do next or your parents figured out what to do next. And then they'd come and retrieve you. Okay. Kind of concept. Um, however, 32% were um, placed outside um, as indentured servants. Yep. That whole child labor laws thing. Yeah. <laughs> so... With all of this in mind, they were still, there were not really any orphanages for children of African descent. Mm-hmm. So the first one, and the woman we are going to talk about, is the founder of the very first uh, orphanage, and it's it was entitled... The Amanda Smith Orphanage, an industrial home for abandoned and destitute colored children. Hmm. That was the the name it was given, and it was opened on June 28, 1899, in a suburb of South Chicago. Ooh. Okay. So, today we're going to talk about the woman who would convert the world. It was That was kind of her goal. Amanda Berry Smith is her name. Convert the world, like, to her religion? To her religion, yes. Okay. So she was... So here's a quick uh, etymology lesson, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. briefly. So Amanda Berry Smith was a Methodist holiness evangelist. Methodist holiest? Holiness. Hol- holiness evangelist. Evangelist. Okay. So the holiness movement is... Uh, is a set of Christian beliefs and practices that primarily emerged in the 19th century Methodism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and to a lesser extent, also in Quakers and Anabaptisms, mm-hmm. which Anabaptisms, somebody out there may correct me, kind of got rolled into baptism. Um, they kind of converged. Yeah. Uh, and it was defined by the emphasis on the doctrine for secondhand work of grace leading to Christian perfection. Basically, the more people you converted, the more Christian you were. Oh, I was see. the whole concept. Okay. So, 
it's the first really big movement of evangelism in American Protestant religion. So, like, nowadays, this would be kind of sort of like those televised evangelical Christians, I would say. Yeah, probably. Because they're big on converting people, too. So Yeah, yeah, definitely those big drives of conversion. I, you, I think you would act... I would you get it with a lot with... Um, Latter-day Saints mm. and Jehovah's Witnesses oh, who yeah. go door-to-door. You know. Yeah. Oh, so true. definitely that kind of that kind of feel. She was born January 23rd, 1837 in Long Green, Maryland. Okay. She was born, both her father and mother were slaves at the time of her birth. Okay, yeah. Okay. Okay. I was like, Maryland, though, but I, yeah. I, I don't but ever remember when anything still, happens. It's still 1837. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so she was the oldest of 13. Wow. Yeah. So big families. We don't have those kind of... Like, every time I see these numbers, like, it shouldn't surprise me because a lot of our women have had, like, a lot of siblings. Mm-hmm. But it still always shocks me because, I mean, you're an only child... I'm one of two. Yeah, well, like, to be fair, within the last, like, couple decades, there's been, like, a lot of <laughs> just... Yeah. This is how you not have babies-ness. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is true. Um, so, the... Her mother and father were um, enslaved on two different but neighboring farms. Okay. And her father was enslaved to a woman, a widow, who um, allowed him... Uh, Ugh. This is all sorts of problematic. I know. We, we are dealing with a time of history that is not that great, so please forgive how we word things, because we also hate it as well. We, we do, but yeah. we're just trying to get through it. Yeah. Um, allowed him to work once he had finished his work on the farm mm-hmm. to make money. So what would happen is, after his obligations on the farm were done, he would then spend many nights going without sleep, making mm. brooms and husk mats that he would sell in the Baltimore, Maryland market. Oh. And eventually he earned enough to buy his own freedom, and then he worked full time to buy the freedom of Amanda's mother, Miriam. Wow. And all of their children. Wow. Yeah. I Wow. So once there was once they had earned their freedom, they moved to Pennsylvania. And one of the distinct advantages Amanda had um growing up was she actually learned to read and write. Awesome. Yeah. So her father would teach her and the family from re- by reading from the Bible on mm-hmm. Sunday mornings. And then her mother would also assist her to learn to read before she turned eight. So when she turned eight, she went to school. Yay. Yeah, she actually got the opportunity to go to school, but it was it only lasted three months during one summer oh. before the school had to be closed down. Oh. So from there, five years later, they attempted... To, she and her siblings attempted to go to school, but it was an all-white school. So it was uh, over five miles from their home. So mm-hmm. they'd have to walk five miles to school. Mm-hmm. And they weren't guaranteed to receive a lesson because they would only be given a lesson if there was enough time in the day after teaching the white children. 
Yep. After about three weeks, they just decided it it wasn't worth it, and her parents went back to teaching her at home. So she only ever received about three and a half months worth of formal Actual education. Education, education. Okay. Yeah. So. Which- yeah, it, I mean, clearly is not a benefit anyway at the time for her. So it is not a benefit, but as I'll get into, she actually wrote her own autobiography. So clearly, Ooh. she told the school system Who needs, to basically shove it. Who needs you? <laughs> Nobody. I wrote a book. <laughs> when she was old enough, she moved to York, Pennsylvania, where she became the servant of a widow with five children. So she went to a revivalist church, um, and while there, she met and married uh, Calvin Devine, and they moved to New York City. I like that name. Yes. Where she had two children, one of whom died in infancy. Oh. In 1962, or 1962, 1862, Devine enlisted with the Union Army in the Civil War. And he would die in battle in 1863. Hmm. Amanda would then remarry a coachman and a church deacon by the name of James Smith and move with him back to Philadelphia. Okay. Okay. When she arrived back in Philadelphia, she joined the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Hmm. uh, where James planned to pursue ministry and that's part of the reason amanda had married him because she was interested in preaching as a minister's wife okay during this time there are a couple of different interpretations among my sources that either while she was ill deathly ill Mm -hmm. she had a vision of herself preaching okay that spurred her evangelism or it was a speech done by another very important evangelist, John S. Inskip, Inskip, mm-hmm. a prominent Wesleyan holiness leader. And during that time, she may have had her revelation at that point. In either case, Amanda was full bore, ready to preach and get the word out. Ooh-hoo. Yeah. She, and this was, both of, everything says it's about 1868 when she has this epiphany. Okay. So she begins to attend camp gatherings and revival meetings for the church where she starts to deliver exceptionally uh, passionate religious messages, mm-hmm. but she would temper those with singing. So she, Ooh. yeah. So she spent a lot of time preaching through song, um, which led her to become a follower of the holiness movement, which very much focused on the espousal of equality and everybody being able to preach their beliefs okay yeah all right i like that very much so so then unfortunately james smith passes away in 1878 okay at that point amanda arranges for her daughter Maisie, who's the only living child of hers to study in england now is this the daughter of Divine or no? This uh, yes, this is a daughter of Divine, okay. not James. Okay. Um, none of James, none of the children she has with James survive to adulthood. Aww. She loses four children in about five years. Really? Yeah. My gosh, for modern day 
medicine. Health. Yes. <laughs> uh, so from there, Amanda takes her daughter to England, and while her daughter is studying, she begins to preach across Europe. Wow. And she gets invited to then go to India to preach. Whoa. And then she ends up landing on the African continent prior, primarily in Liberia, where she, is te- where she again, focuses heavily on her ministry work mm-hmm. and the missionary work in converting. Okay. Her health dramatically suffers during this time. She spends almost eight years in Africa. Wow. And she adopts two uh, two African boys while she's there. Huh. So she adopts two more children. And her health becomes so problematic that she ends up deciding to move back to the U.S. She's also convinced by supporters in New York City, mm-hmm. um, some big-name ministers, to come back. Okay. And when she lands back in the U.S., she begins to preach in New York and New Jersey, particularly to interracial congregations. So she is mm-hmm. moving and grooving. By 1875, she's got she's become a charter member for the Women's Christian Temperance Union mm-hmm. and one of the few black women to gain notoriety among its members. Ooh. She also became heavily involved in other progressive movements as well. Okay. Okay. Cool. She decides to move to Harvey, Illinois, which is a suburb outside of Chicago, Mm -hmm. where she's discovered her new mission in life. So she's just got done doing missionary work for eight years Mm -hmm. to convert the entire continent of Africa. And she decides to, at that point, write her autobiography entitled The Story of the Lord's Dealings with Mrs. Amanda Smith, the Colored Evangelist which was published in 1893. Wow. Okay, so yeah, so she used the book sales, donations, lecturing fees, and she began to raise money for her new cause, which was an orphanage for black children. Because previously, the orphanages were for white children. Exactly. So from there, she also establishes and distributes a small newspaper called The Helper, To also raise funds. So, like, she's a fundraising queen, yeah. Fiend. Like, yeah. yeah, A ridiculous amount. So, she finally is able to raise enough funds um, by 1899. So, in a total of six years, she raises enough funds to open an orphanage uh, for homeless African American girls in a 12 room brick house. In Illinois, in Harvey, Illinois. By 1910, the building housed 33 children. Wow. Yeah. That's a big expansion. It is. Uh, In 1912, Smith retired due to declining health. Mm. And unfortunately, in 1918, the orphanage had its second fire and burned down completely and Mm. closed its doors. Luckily, this occurred after Amanda's passing. Amanda died on February 24th, 1915 mm-hmm. in a cottage in Florida provided to her by a real estate developer named George Sebring, who believed in her work. Aww. 
So that is the life and evangelism of Amanda Berry Smith, the woman who established the first African-American orphanage in 1899. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. No, it's, it is, it's pretty exciting. She, she, there are very, obviously because of the time, very few portraits of her, but you can tell she is very oh, yeah. well put together. Mm-hmm. And in fact, several of my sources cite the fact that she took her dress very seriously mm-hmm. um, because at the time, women of color who dressed, quote unquote, above their class mm-hmm. were looked down upon. Um, some of the quotes from her autobiography and the biographies around in some of the other biographies around that time of her, mm-hmm. the appearances of women in the 19th century have been described as especially fraught with volatile meanings as the line between seemingly overly sexual and appearing presumptuously dressed above one station was a fine one. Yeah. You know, because women don't deal with that at all anymore. But, yeah. <laughs> um, this is the part that hopefully we have gotten a little bit better about, but I do know and not always true. If African-American women dressed out of their respective class, judgments would be made against them. Yep. It's always so much fun. Just how to- like, and it's got to be like such a fine line because I feel like if you, if you dress too much out of your class, then you get ridiculed. But if you dress like below then you're like, nobody's going to take you seriously. So it's like, there's probably like just a really hard... (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's impossible to find, I'm sure, balance of not getting criticized because of how you freaking look. Like, Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. So that's why like, and almost all my sources say this, she, wherever she went, she wore a plain poke bonnet Mm. and a brown or black Quaker wrapper and carried her own carpet bag suitcase. So, like, she dressed in, like, essentially the same uniform day in and day out because it was so fine a line, which the amount of energy that must take. It's not even, like, the energy because, like, I don't know. I don't think I don't know if it would take energy to always wear the same thing. It's the boredom (laughs) that gets me. I mean, maybe she didn't care, but, like, I don't know. I'm one of those people that, like, has to try to change an outfit, like... (laughs) Like, I never wear a shirt with the same jeans twice because that's my weird issue that I have. And I know it's it's very material, but like, but if it's if it were, if but it were, like, I get bored easily with my appearance. It's why I dye my hair once a year. Like, it's just I'm yeah. bored. I want purple hair now. <laughs> Completely understandable. So I don't I definitely could not dress the same every yeah. single day. But I mean, at least she had she had more important things to do, though. Yeah, I was gonna say she. <laughs> to be fair, she, she's out doing us both. Um, mm-hmm. But so, citations for this week, and there were a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so for Amanda Smith, um, obviously, I started on Wikipedia because that's where I start all of these, and hers is an exceptionally well-written article Ooh. with a lot of really good references and information. Then I also looked at the. Illinois Heritage uh, article, The Final Ministry of Amanda Berry Smith, mm. and the uh, Boston University's School of Theology, History of Missiology, so the history of missionary work, mm-hmm. um, an article entitled Smith, Amanda Berry, 
African-American holiness evangelist and missionary written by, they did not give me an author, of course not, probably written by an awesome grad student who never got credited for their work. Yep. <laughs> and the uh, in an article by Wilma J. Johnson entitled Amanda Berry Smith. <laughs> and then for orphanage, for the history of orphanages, I primarily looked at orphanages, a historical overview, the history of orphanages and child welfare policy, published by the Family and Children's Services Division of Minnesota Department of Health and Human Services. Mm. So it's a group effort by the department. All right. That was Amanda Berry Smith, the woman who would convert the world. And open up an orphanage. And open up an orphanage. (laughs) In her retirement, pretty much. Yeah, basically in her retirement, (laughs) because, you know, that's just what you do. It's it's fine. Uh, Jessica, where can people find you at? You can find me on Twitter as J.M. Bailey Writes. And you can find me with the rest of Geek Elite Media at Geek Elite Media and our Facebook page forward slash Geek Elite Media. Mm-hmm. Archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts can be found at geekeletemedia.com. Also, we have a Patreon page as well. <laughs> so if you'd like to support us on Patreon, please do. We're Geek Elite Media on Patreon. There you go. But until next time, this is the United States of Women saying always remember to geek out. This concludes our broadcast. Peace.